Like I said, Bibles, chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, towards the back of your Bible if you're not familiar with it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, that's our gift to you. You can have that Bible. You can take it home and then bring it back next week because we'll use it again next week, all right? I, I say this often. I don't know if I've said it recently, though, but I have this, this dream, this vision that on Sunday mornings that as we stand there in the lobby and we watch people walk into this church, that they do so with a Bible in their hand, all right? Um, I think we can definitely use it on the phone, so I don't want to shame anybody if you got a phone out. That's okay. It's acceptable, all right? But I think sometimes just, I think about, you know, my kids, I want them to see, to understand that I value the Bible because they see me reading the Bible. And if they just see me on my phone, they don't know if I'm on Facebook or if I'm in my Bible, right? So... Um, there is a tremendous amount, it's intentional, it's intentional that I don't put the words on the screen. Most of you maybe think, I wish he would just put the words on the screen already, all right? Um, but I don't. Every now and then I will. I mean, I reserve that out if I want to. But the reason I don't is because I, I want to encourage you to open up a book, the book that every Sunday morning we return to, and to be reminded that it's God who's speaking to us through his word. Um, I think oftentimes we can lose that. So... Um, amen. Amen. Oh, amen. Thank you. Amen is a wonderful way to say you agree with something. All right. It's a biblical way to say what he said. All right. So I think it would be good for us to practice that, you know, maybe a little more every now and then. Amen. Very good. All right. I'm going to pray before we get into this, this morning's passage. Um, again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14 is our focus this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you just for the opportunity we have this morning to gather as your people. Lord, we do so this morning around your word. It is your word. We pray that your spirit would come, make himself known in this place, make his presence so known that nobody here can deny him. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use it now to encourage us, to sharpen us, to convict us, to challenge us, to call us to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified um, in this place this morning. I pray that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, and we ask simply that you would write them on our hearts. Use them to shape our lives. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, y'all had an opportunity to practice what I just said and you missed it. Amen. Amen. All right. A change in contexts or dynamics with others oftentimes affects a change in our relationships with them. Right? So if you think of a relationship you have with someone as the context that you have that relationship with and the dynamics of that relationship begin to change over time, your, your relationship itself actually changes. For example... A friend of yours becomes a boss of yours, right? You, you begin to work for somebody who you had a former friendship with. Well, there, there's a new context, there's new dynamics at play there, and the relationship can kind of be affected by that. Maybe many of you are familiar with the, just the concept, you should never date somebody that you work with, right? And the idea is basically that, you know, that could be tricky because those contexts can easily change. It can affect the dynamics of the relationship and... That's just the reality of just relationships. As context and dynamics change, so do relationships with people. And when I go home 
um, to this day, when I go home, it's just a matter of minutes. And it's just the way I've been habituated throughout my life. One of the first things I do when I walk into my mother and father's home, the home that I grew up in, is I, within a matter of minutes, find my way in the kitchen. And I begin to flip open the cupboards. And I begin to look for things like cookies and candy and Doritos, all right? And I forget that my parents are in their 70s and they don't have those things, you know, in their home. They don't have kids in their home anymore, right? So I walk through there and I look for stuff and, um, and I forget that there probably aren't any Doritos. But I'm so used to just opening up those cupboards because for years those were my cupboards, right? Well, over time, my relationship with my parents has changed. My location has changed because I have changed. I'm a grown man now, right? I have my own cupboards I can open up, okay? I've got my own groceries. Shoot, I've got my own kids I've got to feed. I am a well-fed man, all right? Don't be mistaken. I have no business scavenging through my parents' cupboards. As I've grown, as I have changed, I have related to my parents differently. Some of us who have kids who've watched them grow over the years, it's always kind of a tricky thing is, is trying to understand and discern when and how your relationship to them and with them changes over time, right? At what point do you get to stop telling them how they're supposed to live? Right? Decisions that they're supposed to make. And, and when do you speak truth into their life and when do you not? Because your relationship with them is, you're still mother and son, father and daughter. You're still there, but the relationship looks, looks different. Our text this morning guides us through a different change in relationship that we experience as Christians. And it's really an incredibly helpful text as they all are but the question that we ask i think i find myself asking oftentimes as a follower of jesus is as a christian how am i now to relate to the world around me as children of light how should we relate to the darkness that is around us our former darkness what is that relationship look like the text this morning tells us how we as christians live in and relate to the darkness of our day so the big idea brothers and sisters this morning with this text ephesians 5 2 through 14 it's because you are light you are now to avoid and transform the darkness around you that is your relationship avoidance and transformation to the dark world around you. So verses 3 through 7, what we'll first look at is what it looks like to walk in darkness. What does the, the dark world look like? What he tells us here in these first couple of verses is because our identity has changed from darkness to light. We are called, therefore, to avoid the darkness. Avoid the darkness. In this section, Paul continues his instruction on what is proper ethical living for the church, for you and for me. How are we to ethically, ethnically, sorry, ethically live in this world? What is the morality that he has called us to and called us away from? Because we are different, 
we are called to live and walk differently. The, their behavior, the Ephesians, the church of Ephesians, their behavior should be consistent with their identity. Now remember, as we talked at great lengths last week, this is not how, what he is, is he's holding us up to this new morality. This is not how we achieve our salvation, right? This is how we, this is the result of our salvation. And that distinction is incredibly significant for us to remember. He's been describing this new morality since chapter 4, verse 17. However, in the previous sections, Paul used the imagery of putting off and putting on and the imitation of God. The idea that we are made in God's image and so we are called to imitate him. That was the, the language he used to kind of call us to this new ethic that he has called us to. But here in chapter 5, he uses different imagery. He, he begins to use this working metaphor of darkness and light. You see it come to prominence in verses 8 through 14, which Tim read earlier. Right? The old life that he talked about previously is equal to darkness. The life before we were transformed by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that life, our former self, was darkness, our old self. This new life that we live in Christ, he calls light. Look at verses 3 through 7 as he describes what this former self looked like, the darkness of the world. Listen to the words he uses. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So in these verses, Paul gives us really a description of what this darkness looks like. He uses, he, he describes the behavior and the activity of the dark life with words like sexual immorality, impurity, greed, filthy speech. And it strikes me just as we consider these issues, really how timeless they are, right? How significant they were and how much they, they were used to define the darkness of Paul's day. And when we consider our day and our age, how incredibly relevant they still are, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, and filthy speech. How many of our problems in the world today are similar to the same problems 2,000 years ago when this was written? Sexual immorality, it's consistently named by Paul in his sort of list of sins throughout the New Testament. He says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's relating darkness to earthly, to, to flesh. Put, put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's a broad word, sexual immorality, used to describe really any sexual sin in the New Testament. Homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, adultery, bestiality, anything outside of God's design for sex. God is not saying, Paul is not telling us to avoid sex. Right? But to avoid sexual immorality. That sex was designed, it was a gift to us as God's children within a certain specific context. Paul's language here is emphatic. Right? I mean, historically, God's people had numerous attempts 
to work around, have made numerous attempts to work around this specific teaching, to maybe find ways to justify it or to make room for it. But Paul's language is emphatic here. Don't let it be named among you, not even a hint. Put it off, kill it, avoid it. In the Bible, this specific sin was often connected with idolatry itself. For much of the ancient world, sexuality was closely related to their form of worship and idolatry. They're trading one God essentially for another. Okay, And Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Put it off. He also says, what else should we avoid? Impurity. God calls his people repeatedly throughout the Bible, be holy as I am holy. Impurity is the complete opposite of God's holiness. It is filthy, it is vile, contrary to the very will of God and the way that he has designed us. He says, avoid impurity. It's often linked closely with sexual immorality, but not always. He says, put off covetedness, greed, get rid of greed. Moves us from sort of sexual selfishness to selfish indulgence. And I think we see this one all around us, right? It, it makes its way everywhere in our culture, through specifically through consumerism and how we see it, right? It, it kind of tells us the lie that many of us believe that life's purpose is fundamentally about consuming for yourself. If you were to think of sort of the gospel of consumerism, the narrative of consumerism, the story of consumerism that many of us believe and buy into is kind of based on three tenets. First, that we are created as individual consumers, right? It gets to the heart of our identity. Secondly, that we are passive in this, right? This is where it speaks to our agency as a people. And thirdly, that our sole duty is to consume. So our purpose, the gospel of consumerism, shapes our identity, shapes our understanding of our agency, and also tells us our purpose, right? Well, when we line that up with the gospel, it's completely it's completely antithetical to the gospel, right? Completely antithetical to the gospel. When we think about God, God is seen as a creator, right? Throughout creation, he creates in this world. He doesn't consume for himself. And as we are created in his image, we likewise should bring the exact same thing to the table. People who, who contribute, right? Not who consume. And, and those who give themselves to greed and covetousness undercut the credibility of the church, we are called to be a people who are different. That's what Paul is telling us over and over and over again. Christ's church live differently than the rest of the world. In, in the way that they, they relate to each other, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, the way that they speak to each other. He even talks about the course of the, 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 the reality of crude speech and says have nothing to do with it. God cares about the way that you talk. He cares about the words that come out of your mouth. And some of us have been so habituated in the way that we speak by the context, and sometimes we justify it by the context that we are in, right? So the professional world that maybe we walk in, the people around me speak a certain way. It's socially acceptable. If I don't like at least talk a certain way and crack a certain joke, I'm not going to fit in. Well, Paul says, hallelujah, right? You shouldn't be talking like that. That's the point. That's the point. Telling certain jokes, making certain references. God says your speech should be different. It shouldn't be like the speech of the dark world. Okay? 
I think oftentimes some of these things, um, as especially I think, and this is the temptation I think I have, is there's a temptation to always want to be relevant. Always want to be relevant to the world around me, right? And, and it is a tricky, tricky game. Because then we oftentimes find ways of justifying what God says there shouldn't even be a hint of among you, right? Paul is telling us, avoid, avoid such living. Avoid such speech. You are called to be holy. We are called to be holy as God is holy. He makes it clear. What is our relationship to this dark world? Verse 3, must not even be named among you. These things to the church, they must not even be present. They must not be named among us. This characterized our dark living, not our living in light. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them, right? So we avoid those who give themselves over to these things. We avoid it, okay? Why do we avoid it? Well, it says right there, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you. This is verse 6. With empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These things God takes very seriously, right? The wrath of God is, he responds to this darkness with wrath. Takes it very seriously. Second point, verses 8 through 10. So that's what it looks like to walk in the darkness. Second point is, what does it mean to be the light? To be the light. We see it in verses 8 through 10. The reason, I want to establish in these verses, that you should avoid the dark is fundamentally because you are light. So why should we avoid those things? Because you're light. Because you're light. Look at verse 8. These words are remarkable. These words are amazing. And if you're here this morning, looking at verse 8, and you are feeling defeated, worn out, maybe in a place where darkness looks and sounds to you pretty good, this is what you need to know. The truth in verse 8 is awe-inspiring, breathtaking, and heart-stirring. If there's one verse you commit to memory this week from this text, I submit to you Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. This is truth. For at one time you were darkness, but now, In the Lord, walk as children of the light. This is amazing news. Paul warns his readers of the priority to avoid sexual immorality and greed because participating in such sins would be inconsistent with their basic orientation of their new life. As you look at this, you know, just when I'm reading this this week, I keep wanting to inject the word for at one time you were in darkness but now you are in light but it's not there it says at one time you were darkness folks apart from Jesus Christ 
my biggest problem is myself. My biggest problem apart from Jesus Christ is that I am darkness. And this is the, this is the way the Bible teaches us to understand sin. I think oftentimes we're thinking, we, we, we are tempted to think sin is everything that's outside there, right? And I'm living in darkness because there's darkness around me. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, we are the darkness. We are the darkness. Apart from the intervention of the Almighty, we are dark. This is not a popular concept in our world today, all right? A world that is committed to, to handing out participation trophies constantly, right? A world that, that would rather coddle us in our depravity rather than call us to true discovery. What the Bible is calling us to, what God is, is telling us this morning is that we, the, one of the, the best things you can do is wake up to your deficiencies and your needs. That, that if you want to start anew, it begins by b being real with your problem. My problem is me. Your problem, your biggest problem is you. Apart from Christ, we are dead, he told us already in chapter 2. And we are dark. But it's in this deadness, it's in this darkness that God extends his strong arm and grabs us with his grace. He recreates us. He breathes life into us, opens up our eyes, not just so that we would see our need, but also that we might see his love. If you're here this morning, maybe your eyes are opening to the darkness, not just around you, but inside of you. The wonderful news of the gospel is that even, not just when we are in darkness, but because we are darkness, God's response is that he comes to us in his grace and in his mercy. He, he doesn't want us to recognize the darkness of our soul and to walk out of here feeling the weight of guilt and shame. He wants us in that moment to repent and to turn to him in faith. And he creates for us, in us, a new life. He places us in Christ. It says that we are light in the Lord. And because of this position in Christ, the safety, the security, the rest, it comes with confidence. We now are light. I saw a pastor write this week that faith in Jesus Christ means an ontological change has occurred. Paul is telling us not just that there is a change in us, but there is a change of us. We are new creatures. 
new people. And so as a result, we should have nothing to do with the former darkness of our lives. We are now light. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful news. This is really good news. If you're sitting here convinced today that the world is about to take you over, you hear the sound of the darkness and are tempted by the seductive way of the darkness. Brother and sister, remember, you are light. That's who you are. Since we are light, it only makes sense to then walk in that light. It says, walk as children of the light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Our cravings for what is impure in this world are replaced with an appetite for what is good, for what is right, and for what is true. And this is the light that we shine. This now is the fruit that we bear. We have been completely transformed. This is why Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because this is who you are. So that's what it looks like before, verses 3 through 7, what it means to walk in the light, verses 8 through 10. Remember that you are light. This is what it means to be the light. Finally, how now, the question is, as children who are light, again, how are we to relate to the dark world around us? First, avoidance. Secondly, we see in verses 11 through 14, transformation. Okay? As children, because we are light... He calls us to let our light shine in the darkness. We are not only called to avoid the darkness, take no part in the unfruitfulness of darkness, but we are called to and resourced to transform the darkness. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Hopefully you see the, the sort of predicament that we're in here, right? How can light... Expose that which is in dark. It is, it is not close to the dark. It can't. Right? It has to be within a certain proximity to the dark to actually affect the dark and, and, sh and shine on the dark. We avoid the power and the pull of darkness because we are light. We are in the Lord. But we have no effect on the darkness if we are not actively shining on the darkness. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, a city that has been set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Let your light then shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We as God's people, as his light, are called to shine it. Not to cover it, but to shine it for the sake of transforming the darkness, bringing that which is in the dark, exposing it into the light. The image that comes to mind for me here is that of a firefighter, right? If there was a house that were to go up in flames right now, the call would be made to the fire station, firehouse, whatever it's called, I don't even know. 
They get a call, there's a fire, go put it out, right? Those firefighters are going to run towards the house that is engulfed in flames. But they're going to do so in a suit, right? A fire retardant suit, right? They're going to get in their truck and they're going to speed through town to that house that's going up in flames. They're going to park at a certain distance to the house, distance that's appropriate so they can get access to water, they can get their gear on, they can get all the equipment out. And then those men, especially if they know that there's somebody in the house, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to storm into the house covered in protective gear so the flames don't take them over. Right? Because if they're dead, they're of no good, no use. But their fear of what the fire can do to them doesn't keep them from extinguishing, from putting out the fire, from rescuing those in the house. This is a, it's a picture of what God calls us to be and to do as Christians, right? We recognize the darkness of the world that is around us, but we don't cower in fear, avoiding it, constantly looking the other way, right? We make sure that we are protected from it. Paul continues to go as he writes in the letter of Ephesians, tells us this is kind of how you, you do that. This is kind of the armor that you should have on. Right? As you're running into that house. This is what it should look like. You see this in Ephesians chapter 6. But as Christians, we don't just sit in a corner cowering in fear of the darkness around us. That it's going to take us over. Right? Rather, we gear up. And we recognize that there are people who are engulfed in flames around us. And we are resourced. And we are called to bring the good news of the gospel to them, to take the light that we are and shine it on them. Folks, this is how we relate to the darkness around us. We avoid it and we transform it. And if we're true and honest with ourselves, we do this because this is what has been done to us, right? Christ shines his light on us. There is, if you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, my guess is every single one of you could come up with the name of somebody who, who let their light shine on you. Right? This is our story. And we have the opportunity to make it our neighbor's story. Look at verse 14. This is, oh my goodness, this is an amazing verse. Therefore it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If you're sitting here this morning, and you are well aware of the darkness, not just out there, but in here. God's word comes to us this morning, and it calls you Wake up. Arise, O oh sleeper. Rise from the dead. This is transformation from death to life. This is resurrection life. We are a resurrection people. We have new life in our being. We are light. Wake up. 
Christ will. What a promise. What an amazing promise. We are light because we are in Christ. Christ is light. He is constantly shining on his people. And so tomorrow when you go to work, Christ will shine on you. Tomorrow when you're wondering, okay, should I laugh at that joke? You are light. He will shine on you. Later, when you're looking at the computer screen and you're thinking, should I go to that website? You are light. Avoid the darkness. You have nothing to do with it. You are light. Christ will shine on you. Folks, this, this is my testimony. Arise, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. That's my story. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your story. And it's also your job. Shine your light. Walk, oh, listen, walk through your workplace tomorrow. Awake, O sleeper! I mean, maybe don't do that, all right? But that's your message. That is your message. In the darkest places of this community, that is our message. Awake, O sleeper. Paul uses this imagery of sleep and wakefulness, of light and darkness, of day and night to admonish believers to be ready for the day of the Lord. But here the imagery is used to show that the day of the Lord has, in a sense, already come. Now is the time to wake up. Now is the time for resurrection. And now is the time for transformation through the blazing light of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we go from this place this week, we go into some darkness. Every one of us will. And, and, and see yourself like that firefighter. Not being consumed by the flames, but also courageous, confident in light. Rescuing people in their darkness and transferring them into Christ's light. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your, your word and your promises this morning. Lord, I just pray that... Um, your word would do what your word does in each of us, Lord. I pray it would cause us to reflect and to consider our lives. As we think of our story, being transferred from darkness into light, from, from being darkness to now becoming light, Lord, I pray that the response in our hearts would be that of worship and of praise and of thankfulness you for what you have done for us, Lord. I pray for anyone in this room right now who maybe identifies more with the darkness, who senses that, who wants that. Lord, I pray that you would give them a hunger for that which is good and that which is right and that which is true. 
Lord, I pray that your effect on them would not be, Lord, that they would be so full of shame um, that they wouldn't even want to think about who you are and what you do, Lord. But I pray that the effect would be that they would wake up. Lord, and I thank you for the reality that there is no amount of darkness that you aren't willing and able to rescue us from. There is no fire that is so hot that you won't run full speed in to save us from. Lord, whatever lies in our past, whatever we face even this morning, we believe that you are mighty enough, Lord, to call us to a new life and to shine your light on us, Lord. And I pray that as you extend your strong arm of grace and of mercy and of love, as you extend your hand to them, showing them that you want them, Lord, I pray that, that they would wake up and they would receive your grace and that they would become light. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.